0: Okay so welcome everybody to the LSE for this online event. So my name is Dr Ella Whiteley and I'm a fellow in the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Methods here at the London School of Economics and Political Science, which is always a bit of a mouthful, but I'm very, very pleased to be here to welcome James O'Brien to the LSE today. Um, Now, the only thing you really need to know about James is that he's an LSE alumnus. Um, He does importantly mention this in the book that we're gonna be discussing today, saying that his circle of friends, quote, was a veritable United Nations of ravers and lecture skyvers, which um, I think he actually just lifted from the official Latin motto under the LSE's coat of arms, but never mind. Um, But for those insist on a slightly more informative biography, Uh, James O'Brien is also an award-winning writer and broadcaster whose journalism has appeared everywhere from the Times Literary Supplement, The Daily Mirror. Uh, He's, of course, well known for his daily current affairs programme on the radio station LBC, which has over 1.2 million weekly listeners. And he's also presented and appeared on a variety of TV shows, including Newsnight and Have I Got News For You?, And his first book, How To Be Right, um, was a Sunday Times bestseller and won the Parliamentary Award for the best political book by a non-politician. But today we're shifting gears a bit from How To Be Right and discussing James's new book entitled How Not To Be Wrong, uh, The Art Of Changing Your Mind, which I'm sure many will agree feels a particularly apt topic for the times that we're in more generally, uh, let alone for this day in particular. You know, as we see the results emerging as well as the responses, the rather infamous responses so far to those results from a fraught U.S. general election. Now, I'm sure it's not pos- it's possible to not touch on those issues today a little bit, perhaps in the audience Q&A. But um, How Not To Be Wrong is a book that drawing on James's own personal personal experiences argues for the importance of examining and changing our views in a world of outrage and disagreement and echo chambers. Uh, Now for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Uh, And the online event as you may have already seen is being recorded and will hopefully be made available on YouTube as well as an audio version on the LSE events uh, subject to no technical difficulties. Uh, but this is also going to get live captioned and you can see those captions by clicking clicking on the CC button on Zoom. Uh, as for the order events today for the next sort of 35 minutes or so I'm going to be asking James some questions um, but importantly there's going to be an option for you to put your questions to James too. Uh, we're leaving around 15 minutes for this towards the end of the event um, and to submit those questions please use the Q&A feature on on the bottom of your screen. So uh, questions are going to get submitted to myself and I'll get through as many as I can. Um, And as you'll see in the Q&A box, please do let us know your name and your affiliation when you write down your questions. We're particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni and incoming students. So yeah, do let us know those details. But without further ado, welcome James. It's great to have you here. (laughs) Thank
1: you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. I only, only wish we could have done it on campus.
0: Yes, well, in, in a, exactly in another year, uh, hopefully only one more year as opposed to more than that. But uh, yeah, let's let's kick things off then. Um, so yeah, in, in, in How Not To Be Wrong, uh, you talk about what you, you, you say is your previous fight or flight response to discussion and debate. You know where you'd feel this adrenaline surge as you put it, and you know your, your reaction was to sort of verbally attack your opponent using well-crafted argumentative skills. Uh, but the end goal there was to sort of win the argument, really. Um, and you you comment on how you've undergone this quite marked change in your approach to debate since then, changing not only your tone and your argumentative strategies, but also like the end goal of the discussion. Um, so I was wondering if you might be able to start by commenting a little bit more on that change so like the reason why you took the combative approach in the first place and how you sort of realized a change was necessary
1: gosh um that's a biggie The are yes. uh, the, the the they're linked actually they're, they're intrinsically linked because the, the the point about having this adrenalized survival personality that means you treat everything as a, as a fight um it is why I kind of felt the need to, to try to fix it. So to cut a long story short, it works, you know, this, this attitude, It it, it it's made me quite successful, quite well known. I, I, all the Brexit stuff that I did and, and, and what have you is always about making people look a bit stupid, always about um, duffing them up uh, philosophically or, or, or intellectually. And that was the only tools I had in my box and I hadn't, noted that that was a problem I had no inkling that that was in any way um, uh, sort of limiting and then something quite awful happened we had a proper family crisis a proper medical family crisis and I tried to tackle that like I tackled every other challenge in my life by by swinging at it you know by trying to argue um, my loved one better by trying to sort of debate and cajole and encourage and um, and jolly along what was a medical condition. It was utterly impervious to what you'd think of chiefly as rhetorical flourishes or, or rhetorical devices. And I, I, I knew that I was making things worse and not better, and it was killing me. It was, it was crushing me. It was bad enough dealing with the horror of the illness, but dealing with my own inability to help and, and even to exacerbate the problems was utterly uh, the worst experience of my entire life. And so more in a spirit of desperation than expectation, um, I, I, I saw psychotherapy, my wife's training as a psychotherapist, and she said, why don't you go along? And I'd managed to avoid, as she embarked on this training process, I'd managed to avoid articulating too much of my scepticism about the whole shebang, because that would have been deeply disrespectful to her. And I, I was kind of comfortable with the idea, well, it, it works for I'm sure it works for some people, but there's not much chance it's ever going to work on me. I, I, I once met someone at a dinner party who was extolling the virtues of coffee enemas, and if I thought if I'd thought for a minute that a coffee enema might have helped me be a, of more use to my very seriously ill loved one, I probably would have tried that as well. So, uh, thankfully, it was just psychotherapy that was recommended to me, and I, I went along in a in a spirit of enormous uh, scepticism, as I say, expecting either to find it ridiculous hilarious and, and therefore give me some material for my radio show or, or to get a bit angry, but at least be able to say, right, I've done that now. Don't, don't make me go back there again. And what emerged very, very quickly um, was what, why psychotherapy works, which was unpacking my life right back to some of my earliest, most formative experiences. And it turned out that this armor I'd always worn this, this toolbox, that I'd always carried around was armour and not skin. It was, it was not me. It wasn't the authentic me. It was someone I had um, perhaps been required to become in order to survive boarding school, and, and most obviously and most urgently, to survive the experience of being beaten quite regularly and very viciously by my headmaster at prep school from, from about the age of 10. And so in the simplest of terms, persuading myself at the age of 10 that this didn't hurt had become the guiding light of my life this is and and before you know it you're you're trying to persuade everybody around you of 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 other things you know because the fundamental fraudulence fraudulence is a bit harsh because it's like a survival technique but the fundamental falsehood at the heart of me was that well, this hasn't done me any harm. Being beaten hasn't done me any harm. Moving on to my next school, where, where I was often lonely and, and frightened, but I wasn't. I was never lonely and frightened. I, I'm I'm me. I'm this you know big brash bruiser who, who will duff you up before you can um, land a blow on him, whether you're a teacher or whether you're a fellow pupil. And then latterly in life, whether you're a news editor on Fleet Street, I, I was always. I thought I thought I was always. Um, Sort of naturally attuned to having stand-up rows in the newsroom with with other big personalities, and and in the second or third session with my therapist, it fell apart. It all fell to pieces, and and she'd warned me that it would. Ella, she'd said, if 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 this works, then I will ask you at some point to address your ten-year-old self to talk to your ten-year-old self. Oh, yeah all right <laughs> good luck with that see see how that gets on and i'm on one of my well-rehearsed spiels about how corporal punishment can be character forming and how it didn't do me any harm and it didn't hurt at all and she said something like really it didn't hurt at all and and it just sort of like the dam broke and i just want to course it it really hurt it really really hurt i hated it and i hated him and, and all of these Emotions that had been buried for for thirty years or more, nearly came came flooding back, and she's blooming good. I should stress, I was very lucky because there's not, you know, not everyone gets lucky with their therapist ever, let alone first time. And she chose her moment perfectly. I so, said, "Well, why don't you tell him now how you feel and and talk to the cushion on the sofa next to you and and to my sort of mixture of of shock and bewilderment, I did, and and I. Told him that he was safe now, that I would look after him. Grown-up me would look after ten-year-old me. That he didn't have to pretend anymore. He wasn't alone, and that was the beginning of, of of the whole process. So that's what I mean when I say they were inextricably linked. The trauma that led me into therapy, and then the trauma I discovered in therapy, uh, are like the bookends of, of of the last chapter and the the last. 40 years of, of my life. And um, and that's what I wanted to try to write about when I came up with the idea for the book.
0: It sounds like so much you got from addressing the negative sides of the, you know, the combative nature in your way of approaching debate and so on, but also, yeah, the, the armour that you'd built up over a long time, mm. which of course contributed to that. So that's a lot of the negative stuff identified. And I was wonder what, w- wondering what you thought about the positives then of admitting that you are wrong you know what why is accepting that we are wrong an important thing that has you know has a positive side to it do you think
1: well this is my kind of field if you like it it is dealing with people who are very intransigent and and um uh, profiting in every sense of the word from my ability to make their intransigence look ridiculous by asking one or two good questions. That's, that's you know, the, the clips on my radio show that tend to go viral almost always involve something like that. like You know, me just finding that little thread and tugging it and, and the whole thing falls apart. The, the main bulk of the show is not like that at all, but it's often misrepresentative to see these clips. But that was, in a way, what my last book was about, uh, How To Be Right, was about finding ways into demonstrating the ridiculousness and the danger of holding a certain view on immigration or Islam or or, um, uh, you know anything under the sun political correctness and I knew I couldn't do that again I couldn't write a book I mean how to be right is smug enough how to be writer would have been close to insufferable I think or or I told you so given what's happened politically this year might have been tempting but again it, it wouldn't necessarily have been very helpful for me or for or for readers so I think the best way to explain it is if you hold an opinion, a view that is hurting someone, then what you need to establish is whether or not inflicting that pain on that person is justified. So I, I think it's important to remember that sometimes it is justified. You know, there is nothing wrong with, with uh, dismantling some people possessed of some opinions. But as I've explained, it was kind of my default setting. And I, it occurred to me um, just as the book was beginning to take shapes, so I knew I wanted to write about therapy and I knew I wanted to write about being wrong. But I wasn't quite sure where it was going to go in terms of, of being more relevant than than my sort of psychodrama. And and it occurred to me that if I want to understand why you or someone else holds a position that is not just obviously wrong, or, or at least debatable, but dangerous, hurtful, um, perhaps I could find out if I hold any positions in that category. If I have over the years argued furiously um, from from a position that hurt other people, whether on a relatively silly scale, like I, I had fairly toxic and ridiculous views about tattoos, or on a much more serious scale, like marriage or, or corporal punishment or whatever it may be. And rather, to my embarrassment, the, the, when I sat down to try and write a list of things that I'd had been wrong about or or felt even now cognitively dissonant about you know so for example i would know that i was wrong but i would also not be able to abandon my position so i kind of became my own guinea pig in some cases i became a caller to my own show in a sort of imagined exchange and working out digging down into the question of how i'd ended up in this position proved fascinating and incredibly fertile and hopefully it provides a kind of double-edged guide to to the first bit tracking back how actual attributes characteristics personality um, traits that you thought were innate coming to an understanding of how they were not innate they were put on you like clothes and and then secondly using that as the almost like a magnifying glass, using that knowledge and experience, then digging into opinions that were hurtful and or dangerous and trying to work out where they came from in the hope of excising them, in the hope of of getting rid of them. And that's where the book sort of flirts a little bit with with the sort of self-help area, because I really hope that people who hold opinions that harm themselves and people around them different opinions any opinion that fits into that category if you can really work out where it came from you might be able to recognize that it's it's wrong and even
0: perhaps ridiculous you might then have spotted a good way for so you often see in public libraries philosophy books are are put in the self-help sections (laughs) Uh, there's a question as to whether that's you know quite wildly wrong but in some ways you might be hitting on one way in which they could count as self-help um, but yeah, so just to hone in there on your idea of like, some slightly more unshakable prejudices yes. that you've identified. So you have just talked about things like your responses to people with tattoos. There's other examples in the book as well, right where you say that, you know, you've got this feeling that marriage is the most ideal goal for couples and so on things that on on reflection, you just don't really want to endorse and yet mm. There's something a bit unshakable about them yeah. so you just suggested they're one way of like pushing back against them which is really looking at the origin of those uh, beliefs that you have to try and sort of map out where they've come from um but i was wondering if there's any other suggestions that you have about how to shake off those prejudices and maybe more broadly what your like answers to this might make you say about what human psychology is like are we the type of people that are really persuaded by things like evidence and rational argument or must we be a bit more realistic about the fact that often it's things like feelings and emotions and, you know, stuff that we don't tend to put into the category of rational debate that actually really gets us to change our mind?
1: Well, I, I would have been, if you'd asked me that question a, a, a couple of years ago, I'd have been quite snobbish in my response because I, I saw myself as a great guardian of facts versus feelings. And, and of course, one of the great discoveries of therapy and of writing the book was that, a lot of my positions were based on feelings and false falsehoods, feelings and falsehoods, just as much as the sort of Brexiters or the Donald Trump fans that I um, that I enjoy arguing with and, and 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 deriding so much. So, and then the the other element of it was the the, the political element. So people who'd ended up like me, specifically, that the kind of public school, boarding school, show off, um, performative arguer, that. At the beginning of lockdown, I got COVID and and I was on my back for a week. And then Boris Johnson got it, and David Cameron came out and said, "I know he'll be fine because of the way he plays tennis. I've seen him play tennis." And you know, my stomach flipped over and my heart sank because I thought, "Oh my God, that's me. That's that's almost a microcosm of what I'd been through." Thinking that you know the way I play tennis or the way I debate would be useful and powerful in the context of a medical catastrophe, in, in this case, not mine, but in Boris Johnson's case, very much his. And I was probably the least surprised person in the country when his condition escalated and he, he ended up being hospitalised. So that, very early in the process of, of getting the book together, that kind of set the tone for what would follow because there's two issues here. that You, you ask about how, how you fix yourself, mm. so to speak, but it also, I think... And and it became more convincing the more I wrote about it and the more I thought about it. But I think that mindset of men who've been to boarding school, and and women, but but men are in charge mostly of the countries we're all thinking about now, I think it helps to explain why the responses to coronavirus were so inadequate and and often still in Boris Johnson's case. So um, sort of dripping with with denial and with with dismissal, whereas countries that are led by females, who, who obviously would have been raised in a way usually very different from a brutal all-male boarding school environment, in my case run by monks, which adds the, the, a level of uh, a divine authority, if you like, to the simple scholastic authority that every other school, however horrible it is, has. I, I began to make sense of why these men like Trump and Johnson were messing up coronavirus so badly. So that, 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 was, that was a big part of the examination process. And the, the, the other sort of bit in answer to the question about, about what else you can do is i mean tracing things back to their roots but no two no two tracing experiences will 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 be the same so you know where one example might have involved self preservation you know kidding yourself stiff upper lip is the most wonderful manifestation of everything i've just said because that is you know the empire was built on stiff upper lips but it was essentially sending emotionally crippled men out into the world devoid of the empathy and conscience that would have prevented them from being successful colonialists you know and and so that that's quite a profound and highfalutin example um the smaller examples or the less political the more trivial the more personal examples it was it was it was simply a case of thinking and I don't know how often we stop to actually think about why we think what we think. I mean, how much, certainly in the medium of, of the kind of radio that most phone-in shows involve, you never have to explain why. It's, it's kind of the opposite of a philosophy department where, where all we deal in is the what. What do you think? And then you tell me what you think. And that's it. Then we move on to the next caller. And, and, and the radio phone-in model has become almost a, a model for political debate Donald Trump is the classic example of this and this binary what do you think okay and what do you think as soon as you start saying why do you think it and most valuably why do I think this then it's as if it's as if windows are, are thrown open and and you know the, if if therapy at, at the age of 46 is like discovering that the house you've lived in for your entire life has a garden a beautiful garden that you never even knew existed before, then the application of what I learned in therapy and and beyond to individual instances is like throwing open windows on on previously dark rooms. And so every chapter, some chapters, um, more than one, but every page has an example of how thinking about why you think what you think might perhaps reveal that what you think is daft or dangerous or both
0: great yeah i mean so it sounds like so you're, you're categorizing i guess the suggestions that you make in this book as helpful in a in a self-help way so they, mm. they help individuals come to terms with some of the gaps in maybe their uh self-understanding and so yeah. on um so you what you're just touching on there as well seems to be a slightly broader sort of maybe structural issue as well in at least boys um you know public schools and so on where there's this you know aim to sort of be combative and win debates and all that sort of stuff yeah. but I wonder whether you think it, whether you'd want something like philosophy, not to sound like a massive, you know, flying flag for my department or anything like that. But, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like whether it'd be useful if something like that were taught earlier on so that people were sort of forced to consider the whys of their positions and not just the whats.
1: Absolutely. I, could, I mean, I, long before this book took shape in my mind, when I was writing the last book, which was kind of me, Dancing around the place, patting myself on the back for being so clever. I, the, the idea of teaching critical critical thinking in schools would, I suspect, it would, it would change everything. Um, and and you know, you don't realise I wasn't a very good undergraduate when I was at the LSE. I was, and I don't think that's cool. I'm embarrassed by that line you read out from the book. If, if I was a politician <laughs> now, I'd say it was taken out of context. You see, but but I was I was I did mess around too much. But it turned out that some stuff did get um some seeds did get sown in me so so when you think about uh socratic inquiry that that is you know it, it sounds incredibly pompous of me to kind of wouldn't dare to compare myself on any level but the but the method of of, of zoning in on the why of it you know the, the the in 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 the dialogues in the socratic dialogues where you really zone in on it that it seems to me is it 's almost when you ask that question it 's almost unbelievable that it isn 't a matter of course. it is in other countries and other other I think in France it is a lot more common to just presume that philosophy is one of the most valuable foundation stones of any education and and it turned out that despite my best efforts to 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 you know um, waste the opportunity that my lecturers and my professors had managed to smuggle in some of the some of the appreciation of the value of philosophy but you know even even this week with coronavirus and and the politicians denying science e- even this week i, I found myself re- remembering um coon's paradigm shifts and and you know the, the the philosophy of science and that made my understanding of coronavirus mm. much much better and and everywhere you go actually i'm preaching to the choir on this one today but the, you know the 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 there are no downsides. There are only upsides. It's, 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 I sound like Boris Johnson talking about Brexit now, except I'm telling the truth.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. So there's a, another little um, thing that's just come out of what you've been talking about in the last couple of um, you know answers there. Uh, there's maybe some dimension of gender that is, yeah. is popping up, right? Um, and I'm not sure, I don't know, it doesn't necessarily get tackled head on in the book. So I kind of wonder what you think about this. But um you talk about how like obviously many people are going to be deriding you for changing your mind uh because it can be seen as a weakness but you're saying actually there can be a strength to it and you can spin it as a strength in certain ways so one question i've got is do you reckon it's easier for some people to admit to being wrong than others um so what when i asked this i've got in mind you know someone with certain privileges in life and not to put too fine a point on it but know a white man such as yourself or indeed relative to many others a white woman such as myself um we might have a a slightly easier time of it changing our minds you know people we can still get flack for it but a shift in view is more likely to be interpreted as demonstrating maybe humility or like diligently sifting through the latest evidence or something like that it's arguably the case that you know a woman of color for instance might be much less likely to be interpreted in that way if she changes her mind so you know, certain groups already ac- accorded less credibility just on the basis of skin colour and so on. So maybe when they change their mind, it's more likely to look like they've not grasped the evidence properly, or maybe they're going to be more likely to be not forgiven for the old views that they had, um, that sort of stuff. So I was just wondering what you think about the potential asymmetry and the successes people might have if they if they try and change their mind more. I,
1: I, uh, there's definitely asymmetry. I don't know, that, that I recognize completely the asymmetry that that, that you describe because I, I think that I, I write a lot in the book about white privilege, and I write implicitly probably on every page without realizing it about about male privilege but i think I think where, where your question chimes with me is more in the arena of making mistakes in public than actually changing a mind, changing your own mind or, or um or admitting to being wrong in public. So if you are a woman, if you are a person of colour, then it seems to me that we're at another point in history, yet another point in history, where if you make a mistake in public, it will follow you around for the rest of your life. I, I think most obviously perhaps of Diane Abbott getting her sums wrong during the 2017 general election campaign, whereas somebody like, I mean, Michael Gove, even yesterday, got got the rules of the lockdown that he helped right wrong, and and everyone's forgotten about it by tea time. So some of that will be a left-right dichotomy, I think, because our media is so ridiculously right-wing, then when a left-wing person, whether a politician or not, makes a mistake, there's an attempt to kind of brand them with that mistake, you know, to kind of get a stigma attached to them that they will never be able to shake off. And then if you're on the right, not only do you get a much easier ride from from the media, but you're also more likely to be from a background like mine, and therefore you almost bulldoze your way through this um, mindset, through through this error, through, through this wrongness, and you never acknowledge it. So two people spring to mind, and it's quite timely today, Donald Trump was um, taken under the wing of a, of a mafia lawyer called Cohn, I think, K-O-H-N, quite early in his career. And I was just reading this afternoon about some of the lessons he learned from that guy. And it was never, ever admit defeat, however bad it looks, keep fighting, keep hurling dirt, Keep keep doing this. And you sort of look at what he's doing today. And There's no way Barack Obama could have got away with that. There's no way Kamala Harris could get away with that. I don't know whether Joe Biden could get away with it. I suspect not, but it would be a more nuanced question than it would be in the case of Obama or or Harris. And then a moment of absolute beauty earlier today on the television, because there have been times over the last few years, but I've wondered whether I was going mad. I would watch, you know, what Orwell said about ignore the party, told you to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most terrible command. And I'd sit there watching the, uh, dealing with the news, reporting the news, and then opening up my phone lines or turning on my television and looking at paid pundits and commentators. This isn't a, you know, an education issue. It's a moral issue. And they would be denying observable reality, whether in the context of Brexit, most obviously, or Donald Trump actually saying. After Kellyanne Conway had coined the phrase alternative facts, Trump actually came out and said, don't believe what you see and hear, believe what I tell you. And you, you, you think, well, God, I'm not going mad, but you know, possibly that's preferable to, to acknowledging the reality of, of, of what's happening here. And, and, and you, you pray that eventually the penny will drop for everybody. And Farage was on the telly this morning. And uh, Piers Morgan was uh, uh, re- remembering when, when Trump suggested that injecting disinfectant or, or w- would have a beneficial effect on coronavirus, and Farage denied it. And so very cleverly on Good Morning Britain, this is, for me, one of the ways that we might save journalism. They got the clip. They managed somebody in the back, got the clip out, played the clip of Trump talking about disinfectant. There might have been a semantic argument about whether disinfectant and bleach synonyms, we all know they are. Farage might have tried to pretend that they weren't, but they played the clip. And Piers Morgan said, did I just make that up? And Nigel Farage said, yes. you have just played him the video footage of Donald Trump saying what he denied five minutes previously. Farage had denied he'd said, and he was left with no choice. But to just say, yes, a lie so blatant and so complete that I genuinely believe that at this point in British history, only a white public school educated man could have got away with that or even would have thought about getting getting away with it. You know, even contemplating, how am I going to get out of this one? I know what I'll do. I'll lie through my teeth and Mm -hmm. just hope that the interview's over soon. And yeah, that's privilege. That That's silent, in unacknowledged, unknowable privilege that you don't even know you've got. So there's that great line, which we've all heard and which pops up in the book quite a few times, which is that equality feels like oppression when you've been privileged your whole life, which is how people like Trump and Farage can then turn on the on a sixpence and come out portraying themselves as victims of some terrible injustice or conspiracy. So, so yeah, class, gender, ethnicity, all of these things, I, it turns out I have in common with people that I, um, whose, whose positions and whose politics I've despised for, for, for my entire life. That was quite a discovery. That was not a pleasant discovery.
0: I can imagine not, yeah. (laughs) Uh, The clip that you're mentioning as well, is I think that's the one with the doctor who is awkwardly shifting, like contorting her body the whole time as Trump's looking over to be like, see, yeah, you are going to inject bleach into your veins, aren't you? Yeah, that's quite (laughs) a phenomenal clip. Um, So yeah, I mean, Trump and people that you're just talking about there are particularly sort of uh, extreme examples of people who are totally resistant (laughs) to changing their mind, or I guess in some... Cases do change their mind but pretend that they haven't it's just yes. it, it plastering over of reality um, utterly sort of shamelessly um, but on the question about changing your mind you do sort of mention in the book about how you've you you're really grateful for the fact that the events in your life came when they did that made you rethink the value of changing your mind and the idea that it was possible um, and it may be kind of implied that there might be a time when you would have been too maybe far down the rabbit hole as you put it of a particular prejudice later on or something and maybe that you know the therapy or whatever it was just wouldn't have worked at that later stage so I was wondering if you think that there is sometimes a point of no return for us changing their mind and whether that might be something that's related to age or other variables
1: that's a great question I don't know is is the is the unfortunate answer not not for sure and it, it wouldn't be the individual instances of, of, of preconceptions or prejudices that, that I wondered about the the timescale. It was a bit more selfish than that. Heather. It was more that if I'd made these discoveries in my early 30s, then I don't think I would have had the career that I've had. I don't, I don't think in my newspaper days I would have been able to sustain some of the more brutal experiences in a tabloid old school end of the era newsroom you know if i if i'd been more honest about my sensitivities my vulnerabilities my frailties which i now think of as strengths but but then they were so tightly screwed down they were you know i'd do what everybody else on fleet street did i'd drink too much and start fights and and, and i thought that was great i thought i was some sort of you know character out of *Evil in War*, or, 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 or kind of, out of starring in a film about about newspapers. So, so, so the worry was more two twofold, really. Firstly, I, I fully recognise that having these traits and characteristics can deliver what you think is success in in, in many areas. We talked a lot about politics in the media, obviously. You know, to write a newspaper column um, for, for for the Cheaper prints for the more popular end of the market. You've got to be almost blind to the possibilities of being wrong. You've got to be so convinced of your own rightness that you can take the readers with you almost anywhere. And it's it's almost like a a shortage of vocabulary because I want I, I have little choice but to use the word best. The best columnists. But, of course, I also mean the worst columnists in, in terms of what they do to their readers and probably what they do to themselves. The best and stroke worst columnists are the ones that make their cases so completely, so watertight, so um, impervious to challenge that, that that's why they end up on top of their game. So um, I worried about that, or rather I acknowledged that, that, you know, I I, I hope I don't therapize um, to invent a word uh, myself out of a career because, you, you know, things are going quite well and I, my kids haven't finished school yet and they, they need <laughs> shoes. So I didn't need to, uh, I didn't want to therapise myself out of a career. And then there were times where uh, I felt very regretful for having arrived so late because of that analogy of the garden, you know, to discover this thing within me um, and to discover it in, 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 you know, my mid to late 40s there were moments when I got quite sad about that and I've got an amazing marriage and, and uh, you know, I get on brilliantly with my children, much better probably than I did before, although I never would have realised that. But but you still felt, well, oh, crikey, and then the, my therapist would always say better late than never, which sounds trite, but I think that's the answer to your question. I don't know if, if some people, I mean, look at some people on the telly, don't you, or some people in politics, and the curse of the liberal is, is is that you feel sorry for them, even as they lead lynch mobs against you personally, in my case, even as they, you know, whether it's some anonymous troll on Twitter, or whether it's a, a, a you know, a columnist in the, in the sun, if they're attacking you personally now, for reasons that I consider to have more to do with their psychological pain, and it's got anything to do with me, you, you kind of hope there's a way out of the rabbit hole for them. But, but I don't know, all I do know, is it's better late than never. And if, I, if I'd made these discoveries on my deathbed, then that garden would still be as beautiful as it, as it was discovering it in my forties. Obviously, if I'd, if I'd known it was there all along. I guess I knew it was there until about the age of 10, um, when that man started beating me, then it would have been better. I wish I'd, I wish I'd never lost sight of the garden, but it's, it's gotta be better later than never never would be awful I think
0: so well we're pretty close to moving over to the Q&A but I have got one more question I really want to ask you that's co- it is connected to this I promise so it's um you're talking there about how there's sometimes maybe either self-serving or something value to yeah. sticking into your you know opinions and all that sort of stuff as well but, in terms of like other types of value to things, I was wondering whether you think there is a positive role for things like anger in debates as well so of course you're you're suggesting that a lot of your successes recently have come from shifting tone to something that is more like uh, light or respectful of others and yeah, all that yeah. sort of stuff and um, But yeah, do you think that there are some like positive roles still for anger to play in discussion or or is it largely just going to obscure debate and and you know make people enjoy?
1: Again, that's a great question, and and you know, as I, as I said at the outset, you will still need your fists. you know, but it's about choosing your battle. So, I find the, I find anger is a healthy and necessary response to political lies, less so to what looks like racism at first glance. So, I, I, I think I've realised latterly that speed of change is a valid and legitimate concern. It doesn't mean that you will always be opposed to that change. But if you have become very familiar with with your surroundings, culturally, geographically, physically, and and well, two things happen, don't they? And and it changes very, very rapidly. So same sex marriage was an interesting lesson for me because I knew that a lot of my callers, church going callers who had a problem with same sex marriage were not actually homophobic because I, I speak to plenty of homophobes. So I know I do know the difference. They just couldn't quite overnight process the lifelong notion that marriage is something that happens in their church or, or their temple or, or you know, their mosque or their synagogue only between a man and a woman. And and you know, people like me have a tendency to to harry them and shout at them and bully them and call them names. And that's changed for me. I definitely, um, I definitely wouldn't do that now. But political lies and people who encourage others to vote against their own interests. This is what Anairin Bevin described as wealth persuading poverty to use its political freedom to protect wealth. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, that's angry all day long. And also that, that you win the fights better when you're angry, especially to. And this is why choosing your battles is so important, because what I'm about to say would be a terrible thing to do in the wrong context and at the wrong times. But sometimes the only way to be a bully is by being a bigger bully, you know, and, and by employing some of the tactics with a with a liar, with a racist, with a um, with a homophobe, you, 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 in the first instance, you've got to break the shell and then you can be gentle and helpful and illuminating, but you've got to take them to a place where they don't want to be. And that will normally involve a degree of explicit shame and embarrassment, as opposed to, in my experience, the implicit, the hidden shame and embarrassment that has led them to this toxic position in the first place. So it's a generous anger, but it's also righteous.
0: <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Excellent way to end that one. I love it. So, well, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Uh, must open the floor now to questions from the audience. We've already got an awful lot in the Q&A going on. Um, so to start things off, we've got a question from Zach Silva, who's an LSE postgrad from the US. He says... How do you battle people's acceptance of misinformation when they aren't willing to understand or question why they believe these things in the first place? So do you believe that even the most naive of people have the ability to critically reflect on their deeply held incorrect views?
1: I think you need to start at the end of the question. I think you have to. You have to believe it because the alternative is, is too bleak. In terms of tactics, this is a constantly changing Um, menu for me and that's one of the things I love most not just about my job but about being alive is is the constant discovery of new ways of thinking and new ways of um, analyzing and understanding things so tactically it's got to be evidence but the way that we present the evidence is 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 not working regardless of what might happen in Michigan later today We, we still have the heartbreaking knowledge that half of America has watched Donald Trump for four years and they think he's He's great. So there's prejudice there, but there's also a denial of, of observable reality. And I think that the clip I spoke about earlier, when you, 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 I wish I could do this more with politicians. I don't really get the chance to interview politicians very often anymore. But if we take the People's Acts referring to as a constituency that believes things they've been told that aren't true, the problem isn't them. The pro- problem is, is where they're getting the misinformation from. So you take the battle to the source. And I think that you disarm the source by reminding the source of things they've said themselves. So that that that's why Farage was so ridiculous this morning because he's been shown an apple and he's been asked, is this an apple? And he said, no, that's not an apple. So if you can get to that, and that's why outfits like Breitbart and, 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 you know, other, what, what I would loosely describe as hate sites are so dangerous because they look like reputable news sources and, and, they don't, whether you trust them or not, they damage trust in reputable news sources. So CNN has become no less trustworthy over the course of the Trump years or since the formation of Fox, but it's become less trusted because there's this very deliberate um, corruption of objectivity. You know, there's been a a concerted attempt now for, for a long time. I personally trace it back probably to climate change denial, but this attempt to make the truth and the untruth, the fact and the alternative fact, to go back to Kellyanne Conway, somehow seem balanced. And, and, um, and, and the other element to answer Zach's question is resisting this balance. And the BBC, sadly, is very bad at this. So, so when, when, I, when I presented Newsnight for a spell, at the moment I realised I wouldn't be able to continue was when I was interviewing Pascal Lamy, the former director general, Of the world trade organization um and andrea ledson who is not the former director general of the world trade organization but i was required by bbc balance or impartiality or whatever you want to call it to treat them as equal and opposite forces in a discussion about an organization that he used to run and she struggled to spell and and that that moment in time for me was so illuminating of of the broader problem and i think I don't think we can help the people act describes while much of our media is either deliberately misleading them, knowingly misleading them for, for clicks and money, or what I'd call the good guys have fallen into this trap of, of thinking that, um, you know, every, everything has a, an equal, every opinion has an equal value. And, and there's that old line about if someone says it's raining and someone else says it's not raining, a journalist's job is to stick her head out of the window and see if it gets wet. And uh, I interviewed Roger Stone just after the last American election, and he, he looked me in the eye and told me that it hadn't rained on Donald Trump's inauguration day. And I thought, I don't know if that old cliche works anymore. And that's, that's so, so you've got to get to the source. You've got to be sympathetic to the people. And he, the, the, the phrase I coined during the second referendum campaign was, was contempt for the con men, compassion for the con. And as long as you can find a way of not patronising them by calling them, victims of comms. I think there's always an opportunity to lead them into the light.
0: Great. Yeah, it's funny. I think with when with, when you're writing sort of philosophy papers and stuff, and you're referring to these absurd positions that you think yes. can't possibly exist, and then someone comes onto the TV and insists that it wasn't raining when it was, then you've yes. got your perfect empirical example <laughs> for these debates. It's wonderful. Um, thank you. So a uh, question from Paula Stone, who's a lecturer in uh, initial teaching education in Canterbury. So she says that, By your own account, as you say, you've had a privileged background. Um, So she's wondering uh, what it is that motivates you championing the plight of the people who live in socioeconomic disadvantage, given that many privileged people end up turning their backs on people from the lower classes.
1: Um, That's a bleak question, Paula, but I, I don't know that I can fault the accuracy of it. I think the answer to this is that I'm adopted. I was adopted as a baby. It's something I write about a bit in the book. But, um, but not that much. I wrote about it in my, my previous book because I discovered, and again, this took me by surprise, that I have a kind of a mini-me walking alongside me all my life who wasn't adopted. So from a very early age, I was conscious of how lucky I was to end up with mum and dad. And I was given up for adoption by a, a young uh, Irish teenager who, who wouldn't have been able to look after me, uh, I mean, materially, let alone... Um, in terms of the culture of of rural Ireland at the time. So I I always had this, and I didn't realise it until I was being interviewed on stage at the Hay Book Festival, actually, and someone asked me a similar question, and I suddenly realised that I'd always had the unadopted me with me, and the unadopted me would not have had any of the glittering prizes and the privileges and the gifts from my parents. I didn't grow up in a castle or anything like that. Yeah, I grew up in a semi in Kidderminster, but I went to one of the most expensive schools in the country and I was loved to the nth degree. And and this boy wasn't. This boy didn't have security. He didn't have um, proper nuclear family love. He didn't have the opportunities that I'd have. He didn't have the education that I had. So I I think this insulates me against accusations of being Uh, virtue signaling or or being claiming to be a massive altruist because selfishly I could say in answer to Paula's question that I'm looking out for who I could have been so I guess that's empathy but it's not quite as pure as a as proper empathy it's a little bit self-serving perhaps.
0: Fantastic, thank you. Um, so a question here from Inka, who is a final year PPE student here at LSE, um, and she says, as a young person, I'm finding it very difficult to have, um, to be optimistic, given everything that's going on with, in brackets, a long list, obviously, of things like Trump and Brexit, COVID, state of the UK government, fake news, climate change, social media. Um, so, how do you see? <laughs> <laughs> just a small, small sort of selection there. Yeah. Um, how do you see the future? She asks. And what advice can you give to the young generation of today, who may be feeling just a bit disheartened with the direction that society is heading in?
1: I I'll quote Orwell again: that there is truth and, and there is untruth, and if you can hang on to the truth, even if you are the only one, you will not go mad. So that—that's step one on the, on on the path step two i think and this goes both ways i find depends on on which way the wind's blowing but the classics and and history teaches you that all these moments pass so on a good day that's very reassuring all these moments pass all all these madnesses all these ancient hatreds have their moment in the sun and then they wither away again but of course on a bad day that's like a bleak view of humanity so you know it will pass is it the same statement in a way of saying it will come back again but it depends where you are on the graph to to decide whether it's uplifting or or not and I'm always conscious of something Kathleen Moran said about putting too much pressure on younger generations because they've got more than enough to deal with as it is so so when some old git like me says and I've got great faith that the younger generation is going to sort everything out and fix everything I presume that if I was a final year undergraduate at the moment. I'd be like, yeah, jog on, Grandad. I've got enough to worry about without clearing up the mess you've made. But I do have great faith, especially now my girls are, uh, one's a teenager already, one's, one's knocking at the door and all of their friends and people that I encounter um, in work and, and beyond. I do think that, that some of the, um, I, I think we might be seeing the last hurrah of some of the inequality Fetishization that, that that's been common in in this country and elsewhere. I, I just I just think some some inequalities are only denied because we didn't see them or or understand them. I think now for younger people, there's an obviousness to to some um, injustices that perhaps my generation thought were natural or, or inevitable. They're neither natural nor inevitable, and so they can be undone. And that that gives me. And I hope Yinka hope, hope for the future, enormous hope.
0: Great. Thank you. So question here from Alexis Notabartolo, um, an LSE alumni in Media and Communications, who says, uh, based on these realizations, how would you change newsroom culture to be less hostile to feelings and emotions? So what could an editor have done to make you feel like it was acceptable to display emotion?
1: Well, I was lucky with my editor, Rosie Boycott was, was, was my editor, and she was all for feelings and emotions, but, but she was usually in her office when I was getting screamed at by some little tin pot dictator on, on, on the news desk. Um, ah, that's a really good question, and I, I, it's a long time since I worked in, in a newsroom, so I, I would hope that they're not... Well, they can't possibly be as bad as they were, because a lot of what was done in my day is illegal. You know, now a lot, a lot of you'd be straight to to HR. So I, I'm confident that things are nowhere near as bad as they used to be. But I suspect that if you wanted to change an editorial floor, if you wanted to change the ethos of a, of, of a newsroom, then you probably would want to recognise in your re- reporting um, the reality of other people's existences. So, so you know, we we are reading and writing a lot more about mental health. We're learning a lot more about wellness and about um, you know, whether it's, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's environmental activism, all of these things which have historically been bet noirs for tabloid, right-wing tabloid sensibilities are just edging slowly. And I know some days it feels like they're not, but they are becoming less and less debated and debatable more and more towards the mainstream. And it seems to me that that process will go hand in hand with a more um, healthy attitude to each other in a newsroom. So that, you know, do, do you get the best work out of me by making me frightened and angry? I, possibly you do get better work out of me by making me frightened and angry than, than, than you would if I was in a different place. But if I feel valued and cherished and loved, then I'm going to find a whole new gear for you. And, and it'll be a more pleasant experience for both of us. Great. Um, a question here
0: from Giarmi. Paul Gum, so that's an LSE alumnus, now PhD student at Oxford, um, saying that a lot of the politicians embracing fake news strategies, uh, simplistic messages and denial of objective reality are populists, anti-liberal politicians, Trump, Brexit advocates, etc. Um, and you talked about being a, you know, bigger bully sometimes to beat a bully. Uh, do you think that it would be a valid strategy for liberal slash centrist politicians to use similar misinformation or simplistic aggressive strategies for the greater aim of winning power and being able to then implement liberal policies or is using these strategies immediately making you a despicable populist Very
1: moral, moral philosophy lectures <laughs> in the early 1990s we can't can we i mean the means can't justify the end you you do become what you despise you do become what you abhor if you adopt those sort of tactics i was thinking more of taking the fight to them but having the fight on their terms so so be more belligerent be more aggressive don't don't um don't hesitate to apply the coup de grace because you're worried about their feelings because they don't worry about yours but but don't lie just be better at bulldozing than they are and and bulldoze their lies don't don't fight their lies with your own lies fight their lies with truth but treat the truth like a you know like a weapon rather than like a chalice that should be revered use it to to smash holes in their slogans and to point out the absurdity of their positions so it some days it'll be a scalpel it won't always be a sword or indeed a sledgehammer some days it will be a scalpel that you can take to their uh to, to their position and you can slice it up without them even noticing until everything falls to pieces but but i think you need to have a bit of a killer instinct and i do think that that is absent from from a lot well particularly at the moment the left seems to possess a killer instinct when they're talking about centrists or when they're talking about people they don't perceive as being left wing enough but i think both centrists and the the further left need to um, need to sharpen their blades but more importantly remember who the real enemy is otherwise you end up with inter sign warfare like we're getting now oh Bernie Sanders would have won by a mile or Jeremy Corbyn would have sorted out coronavirus just park it doesn't matter those ships sailed. let's focus upon the ships that are sailing towards us and let's let's use whatever we can to sink them except the, the lies and the misinformation that they use to fuel them.
0: Great thank you um, question from Kyla Henriksen saying, James, the journey you've taken is difficult and deeply personal. And as you know, very few people have the nerve or the luck to examine how their internal psychology distorts their views and cements their prejudices. Most of the pundits and politicians you refer to just won't do this. So who do you hope, like most hope to reach with this book? What's the audience? Yeah, it's a brilliant question.
1: And I should have been clearer sooner that it's not a book about Public figures. It's it's a book about me, um, and if I had been a, a lawyer or a university lecturer or or a, or a shop assistant, I would still have been me. I, I you know it, it, I do believe, as I said, explained that this this toolkit and this suit of armor served me very very well in the career that I ended up in, in the career that I wanted but they weren't optional. It was the only suit of armour. I thought it was my skin and it was the only toolkit that I had. So when you find yourself crippled emotionally, when, when you find yourself unable to be the person that you kind of intuitively feel that you could be, then then the book will help you, I think, swap your armour for skin, whoever you are and, and whatever you do. And, and it's funny, people often say it, it was courageous or it took nerve or something like that. And uh, much as I you know value the kindness and the compliment it doesn't really it, it was it was it was it was urgent and necessary rather than brave or um or courageous it, i had to do it it would you know it was it was it was like learning to walk again and it doesn't apply by any stretch of the imagination exclusively to to public figures and yes yeah, i mean she's right the, the the people who most need the kind of help that i found are the people least likely ever to seek it, which is kind of my point, actually, throughout the book. But it helps us understand them. So that's bonus number two. That's that's the Easter egg in the book, if you like, is that I, I think if you read the first two or three chapters of the book, you will no longer look at David Cameron or Boris Johnson or or Donald Trump with, with with a sense of befuddlement or, or, or with any confusion at all about how they've ended up being so absolutely cocksure about everything while in the last 10 years presiding over the destruction of much that, that, that not only do we value, but which actually they probably valued as well. But they can't admit to themselves that they valued it because then they'd have to admit them- to themselves that they've destroyed it. And then they'd have to admit to themselves that they're wrong. And then they'd have to admit to themselves that they're flawed and frightened and that they're in a 10-year-old's built up stiff upper lips and convinced themselves that this was a normal way to live 40 years ago. So, you know, it it, it all dovetails. I hope it dovetails as well in the book as it did in that last sentence that came out of my mouth.
0: (laughs) It was was a perfect place in some ways to unfortunately have to wrap this up. I mean, that's yeah, ideal spot, I think. It has been such a great pleasure to have the opportunity to listen to and engage with you, James O'Brien, today. Uh, Thanks so much, everybody at home for taking part. Of course, a massive thank you to James for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ella.
0: Just to remind you that we've been talking about James O'Brien's new book, How Not to Be Wrong, The Art of Changing Your Mind, details of which can be found on the event listing. Uh, So do keep an eye out there and elsewhere for future LSE events. But otherwise, thank you so much, everybody, and goodbye.